Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hello to all our podcast listeners and welcome back to Fertility and Sterility on Air. We're talking about June 2022. This is our second uh, season. We're on volume 117, number six. I've been out for three months and I have missed seeing you, Kurt and Eve. Welcome. Wonderful to have you back, Micah. Welcome back. And I'm just going to give the caveat that I'm battling COVID, so my voice doesn't sound so awesome today, but I'm thrilled to be here. All right. And unfortunately, Pietro is out, but we're going to dive right into this and power through. So uh, just to give a brief introduction of a few things we're not going to talk about, there is a great views and reviews led by Robert Norman that's on immunologic testing for uh, infertility and IVF. So it's got several articles and it's a good review on that. And while we're not talking about it today, Eve, you put together a, a wonderful fertile battle on the very controversial topic of polygenetic disease screening. So I encourage people to uh, read that, uh, read the pro side and the con side, and look for this in an upcoming Fertility and Sterility Journal Club uh, Global. So we'll be excited to debate that. Mike, I wanted to say both of those pieces are fantastic. And although we're not uh, describing them today, I really do encourage people to take a look at them. Very comprehensive, both of them. Eve, did you want to give a one or two liner on your uh, fertile battle? I'm really excited about this piece. The um, pro side was written by Nathan Truff and Julian Savlescu, and they really talk about some of the data, including a newly published study from Nature talking about PGTP. And the con side was by Immaculata DeMelo Martin and Lee Shulman, and they really make a beautiful ethical argument against the use of polygenic scoring. And I think that this debate is going to rage on as this technology becomes more and more prevalent. Yeah, it's a fascinating debate with both uh, scientific diagnostic issues as well as the ethical issues of it. So uh, thank you for putting that together. Kurt, the seminal contribution this month is your article to start us off with. Thank you, Micah. Uh, I chose this one to be seminal because it really is kind of easy to digest, straightforward, and really teaches us something, um, even though we might have thought we already knew it. Uh, but uh, let's dive into it a little bit. The, the title is The Effect of Ovarian Follicle Size on Oocyte and Embryo Outcomes. And the objective is actually quite clear, to identify the relationships between the size of the punctured ovarian follicle and subsequent embryology outcomes. So, um, you know, congratulations to um, to Bruce uh, Shapiro and his colleagues. Uh, this doesn't sound like an easy study to perform, but it does give us some really good information. So this is a private fertility center that looked at 157 oocyte retrievals performed during the study period. And what they did was they measured the follicle prior to puncture and then correlated um, all of the oocytes, mature oocytes, 2PNs and blastocysts with the actual follicular size. The overall findings are perhaps uh, a little difficult to, to interpret because they measured the follicle at the time of retrieval and not the time of the trigger. But with that in mind, it really did tell us some interesting uh, fun facts. So again, 157 patients, 4,500 follicles, more than 1,700 were mature, 1,250 became uh, 2PNs, and 571 became blastocysts. So the, what is the final overall take on this is that, well, the follicular size did have something to do with the chance you will get an egg, uh, the chance that it will fertilize, and the chance that it will become a blastocyst. And one of the other take-home messages, which is a novel finding, is that it had no effect on whether that blastocyst was actually euploid or not. So, you know, why did we do this study? Um, and I think part of the reason is because it's one of those intuitive questions that we just really want to know the answer to. As described in the introduction, it is perhaps quote-unquote known that the size of the follicle does correlate with whether you're going to get an egg and whether that egg is mature or not. But never have we actually followed it forward through the embryology lab to fertilization um, and then blastocyst formation and, as I mentioned, even genetic composition. 
the reason I was quoting that I think Bruce did such a great job in the study was that out of all those eggs I just mentioned, only 154 of them, far less than a couple percentage, he couldn't correlate to which follicle they actually came from. So this was a, an extraordinary effort to be able to measure the follicle and then really track um, each egg. So again, as I mentioned, only 54 times did they actually get two eggs in one aspirate where maybe one got stuck in the tube and they couldn't correlate it. So very, very impressive amount of work. The other really important finding I had of this paper is I want to work at Bruce's clinic. He says that this was uh, consecutive cycles, and the average age was 33, the BMI less than 24, the average AMH 2.6, and the number of eggs retrieved was practically, you know, 24 per patient. So I don't see these patients, so congratulations to the Las Vegas practice for all of this. Now, what he did find was that there is a correlation between size and results. What I like, there's a beautiful table two and a beautiful figure one. When you do pull the articles, you can look at it. And it really breaks down um, what you can expect from different sizes. He went down as small as 9.5 and then 10 to 12.5, all the way up to greater than 28 millimeters. The statistical significant findings were that the chance of getting an oocyte from um, different follicles ranged from as little as 30% to as high as 62%. And you might guess that there was kind of a sweet spot. The smaller follicles, less than 9.5, it was only about 30% chance you'd get an egg, whereas the sweet spot was around 62% at around 19 to 21.5 um, in that range. But when you went all the way up to 28 millimeters or greater, you're still getting an egg in more than 50% of the follicles. Now, remember what I just said. These are measurements at the time of retrieval, not the time of trigger. So we have to kind of correlate the difference by maybe... I'm not even sure what it is, <laughs> two, to, two to three to four millimeter difference between um, uh, you know, when we trigger and when we actually get the egg. Now, the chance of getting a 2PN oocyte was similar. It ranged from basically fertilization from as low as uh, 60% to as high as uh, 70%. That actually kind of was the same all across. Um, but the chance of getting a good quality blastocyst also differed. Uh, the chance of getting a good quality blastocyst in the small follicles, less than 10 millimeters, was only 2%, whereas the chance of getting a good blastocyst was as high as almost 20% when you were right in that sweet spot again of 19 millimeters to 21.5 millimeters. And that also seemed to plateau, meaning if you got bigger, the rate was about the same. So that's really the, 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 the take-home message here is that um, the smaller the follicle, you're less likely to get an egg. That egg is less likely to fertilize, and that egg is less likely to be a blastocyst. It looks like the sweet spot is kind of where we'd expect what you might trigger a 19-millimeter follicle, and then it's 21 or so at the time of retrieval. But the larger follicles still are quote unquote, just as good or not statistically different from those. So it's not quite a U. It's really kind of a increase with size and within a plateau at that sweet spot. And the clinical message that they mentioned in the discussion is perhaps this supports the idea that you can push a cohort a little bit farther to get those medium-sized follicles in play. I think the authors wanted to say that the smaller follicles aren't worth it, but of course, why would they say that? Because you, you can get an egg from these follicles, so of course you're going to retrieve them, but it just kind of sets our expectations to be a little bit more realistic. So seminal contribution in that it kind of told us what we think we knew. Um, I think it's really good data. I think it's going to be great data to share with patients and great data to pimp our fellows. So what do you guys think? Kurt, I think you summarized that great. You know, we, we trigger at 20 or over in our clinic, and I'm very comfortable going to mid-20s on ranges even for triggers, and our, our patients seem to do fine. So I was just curious what you guys do. You know, the older IVF studies talk about over 16 or one over 17, and we push uh, much further than that in most people. What do you guys do? I mean, we typically trigger when the majority of the cohort is 17 to 20 millimeters, but what I thought was really interesting is this really supports that there's not a whole lot of utility in getting every single egg from every tiny follicle uh, that exists. And I think that there's a wide range, at least in our clinical practice, we have a couple of physicians who will poke every single follicle and try and get an egg, even from those eight millimeter 
antrals that we see. And when you look at the percentage of those that turn into blastocysts, it was like 2%. So it's not zero, but I think it really says that the majority of those tiny follicles should probably be left alone. That was what I thought was one of the most interesting points of this paper. Yeah, I think it again goes back to a conversation we've had, Eve, which is whether you're a numerator or denominator person, um, you know, some people are going to say, why would I leave any follicle untouched if there's any chance at all that I can get a blastocyst, where others are kind of more efficient and public health oriented would say, you know, it's not worth the effort. But it's hard to say if you're there that you shouldn't aspirate it. Yeah, I agree. I just um, wonder about some of those that might be really technically challenging to get to, especially when you're overlying the iliac. Is it really worth the potential risk of vascular damage to get every single teeny tiny antral? Certainly when I'm doing a retrieval, I try to get everything that I possibly can get, but it is always this risk benefit. And I think I would feel much more comfortable now leaving that eight millimeter follicle in place, knowing that the it's been studied and the likelihood of having a usable blast from that is incredibly low. Right. I agree with you. Um, but I just want to, again, leave the other important factor I gleaned from this paper that if you do get a blastocyst, it seems to be just as good no matter what follicle you got it from. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting as well, because I think there is a tendency for people to talk about um, the eggs being, quote, overcooked if the follicle is too big. These data really don't support that. They looked at usable blastocysts and really did not see that there was a difference between those medium-sized follicles to those that were like 24, 28 millimeters in size. That's what I thought was by far the most interesting thing as well, that uh, size correlates with morphology and quality from a morphologic perspective, but not with ploidy, uh, which I guess kind of makes sense because aneuploidy should occur, you know, right away after fertilization or earlier after retrieval. What I was wondering, Kurt, and I didn't dive deep enough into this, but while you're presenting it, did they look at mosaicism? Because that, that kind of suggests that maybe smaller um, follicles, maybe they're not, the organelles aren't as competent, but the ploidy of those eggs that come out of the smaller follicles is, is good. But you could imagine if, if it's not uh, competent from a, a metabolic standpoint or something else that's um, not related to ploidy, could it be, would it be potentially related to mosaicism? I don't know if they looked at that, and that's such a different thing depending upon which assays you're using and the bioinformatics platform, but I was just curious about that. That wasn't the main focus of the paper, so not all the embryos were biopsied, and they didn't report mosaicism at all. Gotcha. And the other thing I, I thought, you know, you gave kudos to uh, Bruce and his team. This is just a really good example of how someone at a, you know, primarily private clinical practice can do really good research. And he's done uh, great papers like these for a couple decades and highlights the importance of other programs like the Crest uh, Scholars Program between NIH and Duke uh, with Dr. Santoro and just uh, getting clinicians who are clinical but interested in doing research, the, the ability and the tools to do that. And this was a really good example of that. What's not mentioned in this paper is how much extra time was taken at retrieval to perform the study, but it's a really good example of performing a very good study in a private practice. Great. Thank you, Kurt. And with Pietro out, Kurt, I think you have the majority of the articles today. So we're moving on to the assisted reproductive section. And we finally have a RCT on time-lapse versus conventional morphology. So I was very excited to read the title and dive into this. So Tell us about that one. Thank you, Micah. I'm glad this um, article got published in Fertility and Serility as well. It's not the first article, um, an RCT on time-lapse, and it won't be the last, but it is worth discussing. This came from a productive group in China and is titled The Non-Invasive Embryo Evaluation and Selection by Time-Lapse Monitoring versus Conventional Morphology Assessment in Women Undergoing IVF in ICSI from a a Single-Center Randomized Control Trial. So, As I hope is the case with most randomized trials, this is actually pretty straightforward. The goal was to determine whether time-lapse monitoring for cleavage stage embryo selection improves reproductive outcomes compared to conventional morphology. As mentioned, it was a prospective randomized trial at a single academic center, and 139 women were randomized into the two groups that I mentioned, uh, and a single embryo was transferred um, and outcomes were followed. Uh, The patients were actually good prognosis patients, all relatively young um, and 
and I'll get into more specifics in a minute, but uh, very few of them did not have an embryo to transfer. So the main outcome here, perhaps surprisingly, was that time-lapse morphology was inferior to regular morphology, uh, inferior with a pregnancy rate down by 30% or an odds or relative risk of 0.7. And this study actually included women, whether they had a fresh or a frozen transfer. And I think this is a power number, but they found um, a similar decrease in effectiveness with time-lapse photography, but it was only statistically significant uh, in the uh, fresh transfer and not the frozen transfer. So let me be a little bit more detailed with you. So it's always nice to have a randomized trial because of the internal validity. So theoretically, you can really compare what's going on in a single center. I know people are already starting to say, well, how does this generalized to my practice. And yes, it does have some problems. They transferred on day three, whereas many practices um, in the United States go to blastocyst. And uh, again, the patient characteristics are, you know, are, are pretty standard for China. They're all young women with all good prognosis, and they include, excluded anyone that had really any kind of major problem, including uterine problems or ovarian reserve problems. Now, where do I think the study might be legitimately not generalizable is um, when you look at the details of how they powered the study. So they originally powered the study to look at a 50% difference to a 60% difference with um, hypothesizing that time lapse would actually be better. And what they found um, was surprisingly, the time lapse was worse at an interim analysis. So they didn't even enroll all of the patients in their trial. That is often a red flag for a randomized trial, but still let's look at it a little more closely because it is at one center and should have what I just referred to as internal validity. For those of you keeping score at home, what they used was the kids score for the time-lapse photography and relatively standard morphologic score for the conventional morphology. Now, the p-value for this difference was 0.013, which is fairly statistically significant, but I don't know, and they don't say, um, how they adjusted that analysis for this um, interim analysis. You know, whenever you do a randomized trial and you plan on looking at the data before the trial is finished, you should only accept a very strong p-value, not something that's close to being statistically significant because there's still regression to the mean and other things that can lead you astray. What's also interesting about this, and they do a pretty good job describing this and in the reflections, is that it really is a little bit different from the meta-analyses on the subject. There's actually two meta-analyses on the subject. Uh, the first one in 2017 by Cochrane says that time lapse actually improves um, pregnancy rates compared to morpholo morphology selection. But then that meta-analysis is updated in 2019 with a few extra studies where it concludes that there's no effect. Whereas this study is actually saying it's a negative effect. So I'm not sure I could say that one study is going to convince me that um, time lapse is actually detrimental in selecting your embryos, but it certainly doesn't add a lot of strong um, information and rigorous data to say that time lapse is actually helpful. So this isn't going to put the time lapse debate the bed. Um, if you're really a time-lapse supporter, you're going to point to all the flaws that I just mentioned. Um, but if you are agnostic to time-lapse, this is another piece of information that's saying it's just not the hype that we thought it was. Um, and if there is an effect, it's only in select groups and may not be as um, efficacious as advertised. What do you guys think of this? Yeah, Kurt, you hit on um, all the things I was thinking from a statistical standpoint, and these are all great sort of lessons for fellows to just think about. I, I jumped straight to the methods before I read outcomes of it, and I thought, oh, you know, they 240 people to detect a 50% to 60%, that's, that's not a right power analysis. You need around 750 or 800 to detect a 10% difference, and just having done a lot of sample sizes, you know, right off the bat, I was thinking this is going to be a type 2 error. And they're going to find no difference. But uh, one of my favorite questions as fellows is, you know, they know that smaller studies are at more risk of a type two error, but what about uh, type one error? And obviously smaller studies are also at risk of type one error. And Rick Legros asked me that question at my old boards with uh, Kurt sitting there examining me on my thesis. Uh, and I, I blanked and forgot, but the smaller a study, the more likely the type one error. And if you think about it, you flip a coin 10 times, nine times it's head, one times it's tail. By the time you flip it a hundred times and a thousand times and a million times, it's going to regress to that 50-50 mean. Uh, and so there's certainly a risk that 
this is a type one error, especially because they don't talk about an interim analysis or they're looking at their data after each new patient. And once they got statistical significance, decided to publish it, we don't know because it's not clear. Uh, and so I think that fits in with what you're saying about the early data analysis. Yeah, I also want to give you guys another tip on looking at a trial. Not only do I think the sample size here was not as comprehensively disclosed as I would like it to be, but look at what they propose and look at what they found. So they proposed 50 and 60 percent, well, they said implantation rates, but the pregnancy rates in this trial was like right on for time lapse. They proposed 50 and it was 47.8. What tipped the scale here was that the success rate in the cleavage embryos was really, really high. It was 71 percent. That's not what they propose, and that's not what it was in their previous study, which was a pilot. So the spuriousness here might be the unexpected high pregnancy rates in the control group rather than the detrimental effect of the intervention group. Why do I bring that up? Because I think that is the problem with the um, progesterone for preterm um, labor. That uh, if you look at that study in um, the New England Journal, um, it, they proposed a difference and they found an unexpectedly high preterm delivery rate in the control group, not what they expected. And that's what made it the therapy look like it worked. So this is another reason that trials can lead you astray and you should really look at the data rather than just the bottom line. That's such a great point, Kurt. It's exactly what I had written down as my last comment. Uh, Jim Seegers, who trained both Eve and I when he was at the NIH, used to always say that if, uh, if it's either a positive or a negative finding, but the control group is oddly low or oddly high, that's a, a red flag on the outcome. So I'm so glad you delved into that. So that's exactly the point I was going to make. And I, I've been diving in pretty deep to some environmental toxicity and miscarriage studies and have noticed in the control group of, of a lot of these studies, the miscarriage rates are under 5%. So, of course, when you have a normal miscarriage rate of about 20 to 25% in a group that has potential exposure, when you're comparing that to an abnormally low miscarriage rate, you get these spurious correlations. Good stuff. I always li like the uh, fireside statistical chat with Eve and Kurt. Our next article is sticking into the uh, ART section, and Pietro was going to present this one, but he's not with us today, so I'll just present it quickly. So this is assisted reproductive technology treatment, increases obstetric and neonatal risk over that of underlying infertility diagnosis. This is from first author Judy Stern and senior author Diop. And this was a epidemiologic study similar to many other ones that Judy has published using the uh, Massachusetts uh, insurance claim database. They had over 80,000 pregnancies and they found an increased risk of hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia, gestational diabetes, and other placental problems like low birth weight and prematurity in patients delivered by ART over those with infertility who were not delivered with ART. And that group was increased over those who were fertile. So fertile patients had the lowest risk of these placental abnormalities. Infertile patients who did not use ART were the second increased risk. And then the highest risk was those who used ART. The uh, adjusted relative risks for all of these findings were somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5. So uh, even though they were statistically significant, they were relatively on the, the lower side. And with 80,000 patients, sometimes you like to think about that in terms of absolute risk and numbers needed to harm. They don't give that information flat out, but uh, most of the differences were somewhere between 1% and 3% uh, absolute risk differences between these two groups, meaning the numbers needed to harm might be somewhere uh, between 33 and 100 pregnancies. So I think this is helpful. They did some things with their design that they felt like made it improved over their prior studies. I do think it's something we should counsel our IVF patients about, but I do think giving them those numbers needed to harm is helpful. And I personally have not had a patient choose to stay infertile and not have a child that's presented when, when they hear data like these. Uh, Kurt and Eve, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I like this paper for the, um, again, the idea of let the data just flow over you. I, I don't know that you can specify exactly what the prevalence is in this case, and there probably is some confounding in it, but, but the general finding is what you want to take, which is that there are placental defects um, in women that get pregnant, <laughs> um, in all women that get pregnant, but it seems to be that there might be some association and differential on how you get pregnant. 
I'd still love to know a mechanism. I'd still love to know a, a, you know, a more precise number, but this just adds to the literature that there is something different about pregnancy in someone that's infertile and also different in someone that achieves a pregnancy with ART. That, I think, is the take-home message. Yeah, and I thought that they did a really good job. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about what is the influence of an infertility diagnosis in and of itself versus what is the influence of ART. And I really liked the study design and how they teased out those who had infertility who used ART compared to those who had infertility that did not use ART by using a couple of the diagnosis codes in the database. So I really commend the authors for that. And I think, again, the take-home point is that ART was associated with placental, some form of placental defect. And I think that that is emerging as a newer theme as we move into this next chapter of ART, not just optimizing pregnancy outcomes, but really optimizing health of the newborn. Yeah, absolutely. I will let the data flow over me, Kurt. And it uh, made me sort of think about the work that Valerie Baker and others are doing on the importance of a corpus luteum with some of these. And so it'll be interesting to see how that story uh, plays out over time. All right, next we're moving on to epidemiology. Uh, This was an article that Pietro had. uh, So thank you, Mike. I have another article that came from the Mozart team and and Judy Stern. And this one is first authored by uh, Caitlin, Sasha, and uh, senior author Charles Broman. Um, And this article is the impact of single step and sequential embryo culture systems on obstetrical and perinatal outcomes in singleton pregnancies. Again, the Massachusetts Outcome Study of Assisted Reproductive Technology, or Mozart. So this is kind of the same database that we just talked about in the previous study, but it's much more select and much more specific as it's drilling down all the way to laboratory approaches. So the objective was to compare the obstetrical and perinatal outcomes of deliveries conceived with embryos from single step versus sequential culture media. So the first thing I have to say is, thank goodness someone has finally read one of my editorials. A couple of years ago, I read an editorial about embryo culture and scurvy. No, I'm not saying that people that have IVF and embryos cultured uh, get scurvy, but scurvy was uh, the first randomized control ever conducted. Uh, It's historical. You should look it up about how somebody literally on a ship uh, randomized people to which fruits and vegetables to eat and found out that um, it was citric fruits that uh, cured scurvy. So my comment was that we knew more about scurvy than we knew about embryo culture for a long time. Embryo culture is the epitome of the black box. We don't often know what's in these media, and we also don't know whether one is better than another. So I was very pleased to see the Mozart team attack this and see if we can actually directly compare a single step versus sequential media. So uh, how was the study done? They basically took the Mozart data and went all the way back to MGH um, and Brigham and they found out not only who underwent IVF, exactly what the conditions were, and then linked that data not only with the SART data, but with the Massachusetts outcome data to actually see the outcome of these children. Most media, as you might know, has been optimized, albeit relatively secretly, to just optimize cleavage or the the appearance of the morphology of an embryo. There's very few studies that have actually taken it all the way out to see um, outcomes of children. There might be some intermediate studies that look at pregnancy rates, but very rarely do we go out to to look at the children. So this looks at embryos cultured to day five or six, and they look at the single step, which is the Fujifilm um, single step media from uh, Irvine, California, versus global slash global total, which is um, the media from Cooper Surgical. Once you get the data about exposure and you can follow um, these uh, women who got pregnant and their children all the way out with this wonderful linkage of the Mozart team, you can actually perform a very nice cohort study. And it's nice in in terms of the data they obtained and also in terms of the statistics. Uh, They performed a multivariate logistic regression that included controlling for things like age, race, education, insurance status, oxygen tension, whether or not you had protein supplementation into the media, uh, fertilization rate, and number of embryos transferred. 
Now, in any cohort, you can see in the table one that there are some subtle differences between the two groups, which is why um, this adjustment is necessary, but really not major differences. And in table three, you can see actually the actual outcomes of the study. Now, there were a lot of outcomes that were looked at in the study, everything ranging from whether it was a vaginal delivery um, or whether there were placental abnormalities, um, going all the way down through things like we, we'd like to look at the pregnancy-induced hypertension, preterm delivery, low birth weight. And most of these were very, very comparable. In fact, the only finding that they found was a difference in the least prevalent outcome, which was large for gestational age and looked at it, uh, there was a slightly higher rate in a single step compared to the sequential media, which was actually in the crude analysis, not statistically significant, but in the adjusted analysis had an odds ratio of 2.1 that did reach statistically significance. So the bottom line is that, well, I'm not really sure how to interpret the bottom line here. You could really interpret this that they found a significant clinical outcome that's different between these two media, but you could also say that you know, they're pretty reassuringly similar. And it's not 100% that this one finding isn't just uh, an artifact. The mechanism, for example, of a large gestational age child is um, not clear. And they, dis they discuss that, that there is no known biological mechanism. Uh, and, you know, you could quibble with the study that there are some differences in the groups. Most, most importantly or glaringly was oxygen tension, which has changed over time. So you can interpret the study two ways. Well, first, I want to thank the authors for conducting this study, but you can interpret it as that it's relatively um, similar, or there's no dramatic differences, or you could actually say, look, we actually found a clinically important difference here, and that should trigger us to study this more often and um, more contemporaneously with uh, the new media and the different media that we use in different cultures. Hard study to do, but this is important. As I mentioned, media are usually looking at a surrogate outcome, and very rarely do we get to the real outcome, and we should have more studies that get to actual clinically related outcomes in children. What do you guys think? I took it from the, the null standpoint that it was overall reassuring that they were pretty similar. Um, it was interesting to me that the, you know, the odds ratio wasn't significant in the unadjusted model, and then once you adjusted for the confounders that they thought they needed to, it went all the way up to 2.1. I mean, it almost doubled, which is a pretty big change in the odds ratio from the adjustment. And it just makes me wonder all the things you're saying that, you know, might be hard to track over time that could be related to these outcomes that have nothing to do with the media, but maybe has to do with other changes that were made in the lab, like you say, oxygen tension or, or many other things. It, well, another caveat in, in trials like this is, I mentioned it on purpose, that the statistical significant finding was in the least frequent outcome. And one of the uh, tests that I do as a rule of thumb is you look at the outcomes and if you just moved one or two numbers in different directions. For example, large gestational age was not diagnosed in some or overdiagnosed in another or belonged in, there was one misclassification. That's going to go away pretty quickly. So it's, it's a relatively um, unstable, statistically significant finding. But I don't want to discount it. I mean, they did find something that was different. And maybe I'm not going to run downstairs and, and, and say we should change our media. But I really think that this is a invitation to saying that we should be having more studies like this. And I implore those that make media to make their media available for this kind of study. This is important stuff. Yeah, but I also think that you're taking a continuous variable of body weight and you're turning it into something that's dichotomous, like LGA, yes, no. And I would have loved to see the difference in gestational weight between those fetuses um, in the two categories as opposed to just that outcome of LGA, yes or no. What do you think about that statistically, Kurt? Yeah, that's another thing that gets bantered around in all sorts of studies. Is it better to look at dichotomous or continuous variables? I don't have an answer, but I don't mind if there's a definition, a clinical definition of a dichotomous yes or no, you have a, um, a condition. I don't mind using that. Um, but I argue with my perinatologist all the time on what's the clinical significance of a small or large for gestational aged baby. If it's, you know, one gram either way and all of a sudden you're not, then, you know, from a really specific point of view, you might have a problem. But from a health point of view, those are accepted clinical entities. Right. And I know in a lot of the early, early ART studies, like early 90s, the difference in gestational weight was like 40 grams. And that was enough to say that IVF babies were LGA or SGA. 
And I agree with you, if there's a good definition of it, then it, it makes sense. But I think without seeing those data, without seeing and being able to quantify the, the magnitude of difference, I, I do have a healthy dose of skepticism to say, like, how much does this really impact overall health and outcomes? And I think it is a way and an invitation to study this further. Yeah, sometimes you won't see a difference in means. Sometimes because there's a scatter in normal, that the, the mean difference between two groups will spuriously reassure you. So sometimes it is correct to look at the defined clinical entity uh, that you do or you don't have large for gestational age. And if that prevalence is different, that might be more clinically significant than um, the appearance of only a few gram difference. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I just, I'd like to see both. Right. Great discussion. I like that. So I have the next article. We're moving on to the endometriosis section. So we know that endometriosis in adolescents often presents with severe pain and superficial lesions as compared to adults where it typically presents with deeper infiltrating lesions and infertility. And unfortunately for adolescents, they can often go seven years or more before they receive a diagnosis of endometriosis with their pain. Sasamoto, Mismer, and Terry and colleagues from the Brigham and a collaborative group present a study that's titled Pre-Surgical Blood Metabolites and the Risk of Post-Surgical Pelvic Pain in young patients with endometriosis. So their objective was to identify peripheral metabolites that were associated with persistent post-surgical pelvic pain. And while there's been a lot of work looking for serum markers that are diagnostic of endometriosis, this is, to their knowledge, the first study looking at peripheral metabolites with this persistent post-operative pain. So this was a prospective cohort of 180 adolescents who underwent surgery. They had blood samples collected at their baseline visit uh, anywhere from five weeks and six months after surgery as well. So they had a baseline serum metabolites and then post-op. Pain was used evaluating forms compliant with the simply titled World Endometriosis Research Foundation Endometriosis Phenome and Biobanking Harmonization Project, or WRF-F, etc. for uh, their acronym. They did some fairly complex statistics, but I think the important point was they set their false discovery rate at 1%, uh, meaning that only 1% of, uh, their, of their positive findings would be falsely positive. And this is a good thing to do for a, a, discovery, uh, a discovery type study. Uh, for fellows, you can almost think of this as sort of a other way to do something like a Bonferroni correction to try to minimize <clears throat> those errors. Persistent post-op pain was found in 36% of the women, which is consistent with prior studies. Again, these are adolescents with an average age of 17. They found higher level of uh, multiple lipid metabolites that were associated with persistent post-surgical pain in adolescents with endometriosis. And I think these findings uh, make sense given what we know about endometriosis. So there's a lot of epigenetic differences in endometriotic lesions compared to utopic endometrium. Uh, they upregulate genes needed for steroidogenesis, for the estrogen receptor, for COX-2 expression, and all of these lead to inflammation and growth and in increased estrogen. They downregulate the progesterone receptor, which can lead to progesterone resistance. And so the lipid metabolites that are found in this study are strongly featured with other chronic pain disorders like fibromyalgia. Uh, and may be involved with the upregulation of the steroid pathway in these lesions, as well as the pain that these patients uh, present with. Interesting, pregnenolone metabolites were inversely associated with pain. And this also makes sense given that uh, endometriotic lesions downregulate the conversion of pregnenolone to progesterone so that it shunts over to estrogen. So I think all of these are consistent with what we know from a pathogenesis standpoint of endometriosis. Overall, I think this was a very well done project in the continuing search for peripheral metabolites. Uh, that looked at it from a different question, a different perspective. I'm not sure that this study would necessarily change my clinical management in these adolescents unless the data inform how you want to postoperatively manage their pain. Although I would probably, if I saw endometriosis, tend to treat all of them with something that brought, uh, blocks prostaglandins and potentially downregulates uh, GNRH pathway. So I think these data confirm and further inform our understanding of the pathogenesis of endometriosis. I'm not sure that I would clinically uh, change my management based on this. Eva Kurt? Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I do think that perhaps in the future, we may be able to identify a population of patients that might not benefit from surgery who may 
just require medical therapy. And if we had the ability to predict that preoperatively, then I think we would save healthcare dollars, would save postoperative pain and suffering and offer solely medical management to a select population of patients. I think that's a great point, Eve, because um, surgical management is just not plausible in a lot of patients anymore. We've really moved away from laparoscopy. So although I think research in endometriosis has moved at a glacial pace, this kind of incremental work will actually help us in the long run because I think there's going to be a, has to be a transforming way we treat these people because we simply can't operate on everybody. Yeah. And I also wonder if maybe this uh, might give us new insight into uh, medical targets that are non-hormone based. So we're not targeting um, decreasing their estrogen and actually can target some of these molecular pathways uh, more precisely. Slow, but steady. Slow, but steady. Yep. (laughs) So next Eve, I think you are up. Your voice seems to be holding up well. So thank you for powering through. I was very interested when I saw the title uh, of this article. So tell us the one about decision regret in uh, older IVF patients. Yeah, so the title of this article is Decision Regret After Failed Autologous IVF in Women Age 42 and Over. And this was with David Wong and senior author Heather, Heather Huddleston at UCSF. I really like the study, and I think it provides some insight into our patient's psyche And I think this is an article that will really stick with me as I counsel patients over 40 regarding IVF prognosis. The same group published a paper a few years back looking at decision regret in patients undergoing planned OC cycles, and they showed the most regret in patients who had the fewest oocytes retrieved. And that manuscript really stuck with me. And since its publication, I have introduced the concept of decision regret into my own counseling. And I talk with patients about this as a risk factor when they're deciding to undergo a planned OC cycle. This manuscript really builds upon that concept and adds another useful counseling nugget for older patients, and particularly those with a worse prognosis. So the purpose of this study was to quantify the level of decision regret in women who are greater than or equal to 42 after autologous IVF to identify factors associated with moderate to severe decision regret. They had 463 patients at a single center who underwent IVF with autologous oocytes, and they only invited patients who were more than a year out from completion of treatment. Patients who either used eggs that were frozen at a younger age who were act- or patients who were actively in treatment were excluded. Surveys were sent, and they included demographics, perceived counseling, and support during IVF decision regret surrounding IVF and outcomes of IVF treatment and subsequent family building. They used similar studies uh, that decided that a score of less than 25 was considered absent to mild regret and a score of greater than 25 was considered moderate to severe regret. Participants were asked their estimation of percent chance of live birth. They were asked whether they were counseled on the chances of live birth using their own eggs whether a donor egg was discussed, and whether success rates between these two were contrasted. They were also asked about their perceptions of the adequacy of information and counseling and adequacy of support from a mental health counselor. In this particular clinic, structured emotional support is not routinely integrated. So the final analysis, the numbers were small. There were 94 respondents. Um, And I think it's important to know that of those 463 surveys that were sent, 70 of those patients went on to have a live birth. And then of those 70, 34 responded to the survey. So I think it's important that there's likely bias. But I think if anything, this paper underestimates the degree of decision regret because the majority of patients that were unsuccessful did not respond. So 34 had a live birth. 60 did not. The elapsed time between treatment and survey averaged four years with a range of 2.5 to almost six years. And the high-level takeaway points, um, one, and I think everyone will be uh, not at all surprised by this, but patients overestimated their IVF success. And the median self-estimated probability of live birth was 50%. And that's a stark contrast to where the likelihood of live birth really lies in a patient who's over 42. About half of those patients stated that they were called being counseled on donor egg, and 79% agreed that they received adequate counseling. 
Not surprisingly, those that did not have a live birth had more decision regret, and 40% of those patients expressed moderate to severe decision regret. There was only one respondent with a live birth who had high decision regret, but otherwise those who had a live birth did not express regret. High decision regret was associated with perceptions of poor counseling and inadequate emotional support. Those who at least had partial insurance coverage had less regret. And so I think the main take-home points, um, what can we take home or that, <laughs> let me rephrase that. So what can we take away from this paper? Um, one, I struggle a little bit as I never want to be a Debbie Downer when counseling patients over 42, but I also want to provide realistic expectations. I do think that integrated psychological support is an essential component of an IVF program. And we've struggled a little bit with this in our own program. We used to have 100% of patients undergoing IVF have an initial psychology visit. Now we've moved to more visits with those who are, quote, at risk. But how we define at risk differs. And I think the best way would be a targeted screening tool with a validated scoring system and patients who have high scores get flagged and proactively scheduled with psychology or mental health professionals. And I think going back to the earlier point of a 22% response rate, what about the other 78%? I strongly suspect we're underestimating decision regret, but it's possible that those patients just don't think about their IVF journey and they just didn't care enough to complete the survey. And I think we just don't know. And again, I think in summary, I think this is a great paper by this group and will absolutely factor into my own counseling for IVF patients and especially those with poor prognosis. Micah, Kurt, what do you guys think? I'm glad to see this written up as a paper, but it doesn't surprise me that there's regret um, because people don't understand statistics. And I don't know how to change this, but if I could change something, I wish we wouldn't talk in 25% success or 30% success because I don't think patients understand that. It's either successful or it's not in their mind. Um, and they don't appreciate that um, if 100 people like you went through this program, only 20 would get pregnant. Uh, Heard, I, I always tell patients that statistics don't apply to the individual. For any one patient, it's either zero or 100%. And granted, you could argue that a biochemical or an ectopic is somewhere, somewhere in the middle. But for most patients, and the way I really counsel patients is that it, it, those, those numbers don't apply to an individual. Right. But there's got to be some way to convey that you have a low chance of winning, um, and, you know, I, I've used this lottery analogy before, but, you know, everyone that buys a ticket thinks they're going to win the lottery. Uh, it, you know, they don't buy a ticket thinking they're going to lose. So, um, I don't know. We just got to do better as a field at, at conveying the, the, the real truth to these people to minimize regret. Yeah, it's so hard because I, I have had a couple of patients that have left my practice um, who've asked me point blank, like, don't you have anything better that you can tell me? You're so negative. Um, like, I really want a doctor who's going to be more positive. And I'm like, but you're 45. Like, like, I can't be more positive and be ethical at the same time. One of our GYN oncologists, Kurt, for exactly what you're talking about, doesn't give percentages with any of the things. He says things like, this is extremely likely to happen, or this is very unlikely or rare in your case, um, for exactly the reasons that you're saying. I don't know that that's necessarily better, that patients perceive that better or would have less regret, but um, I, I think it's a valid point. I don't know, though. I mean, we have patients who, and I think all of us struggle with this, patients who come for a second opinion and I have patients who have FSH levels that are 30, that have AMH levels that are undetectable, and they're shocked to find out that their likelihood is so low because they were just simply never counseled. And I think that it's a disservice if you don't counsel patients, particularly, I, I don't care who's paying for it, but somebody somewhere is bearing the brunt, and I feel like it is our ethical responsibility to share at least some semblance of what is the overall likelihood of success to really allow somebody to have informed decision making as to whether or not they want to go through it. So yeah. I don't know what I don't know what the right answer is. I really struggle with this in my own practice, but I think at least if I can now add to that counseling that in addition to the risks of being unsuccessful, you may actually regret your decision to go through this. Um, I, I think it's 
it's just another piece of the puzzle. I'm glad we're talking about this because this has bothered me for a long time. You know, if you're more optimistic or quote a higher success rate, you have a higher business and you're not chasing patients away. That's one side of the argument that I think is unfortunate in our field. But the, uh, the flip side is this, that um, you are potentially doing harm and there is real regret. Um, it's not only economic, but psychological as well. So this is probably a longer discussion for another podcast or, or another event. But um, anyway, it's nice to see this information in fertility and sterility. So as always, we highlighted just a few of the articles that we wanted to talk about this month. There's a lot of other great uh, content in Fertility and Sterility June's edition, including a great video article, uh, two practice guidelines having to do with the uh, ART lab. And I don't have a specific shout out today, but I just want to give a shout out to all of our listeners and followers across all of our social media platforms. Instagram, we've been on for a year, Fertility Sterility, over 4,000 followers, Twitter at FertSturt, over 9,000 followers. Facebook, Fertility and Sterility, 13,000 followers. And YouTube is actually our biggest social media platform with 14,000 followers. We have a host of all of our great video articles there. So that's over 40,000 followers. We're putting out content every day, thanks to Pietro uh, and his team of interactive associates who do a great job. So if you don't already follow us, uh, please do on any of those social media platforms for very digestible, good content. Kurt and Eve, it was great to see you guys again. I've missed these discussions very much over the last three months. So good to have you back and have a good um, rest of the month, everyone. We'll see you next month. Thank you, Micah. Great to have you back. And thank you, all of our listeners. Your homework is to go tell someone else about the podcast and get them to be a listener too. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.